0: This is a word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host Jason Johnson. It's award season, a time when the best of the best in film gets recognized and celebrated. Except when they aren't. Black writers in Hollywood still struggle for attention and acclaim. And with another year and no African American writers nominated for Oscars, how can black writers actually break through? As long as you have creatives, you know, engaged
1: and passionate, you have an outlet. You know, and I don't put it just on the creatives because I think the point that's under your point is also their are gatekeepers as well.
0: Riding While Black in Hollywood coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand and he knows granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears call click Granger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done
0: welcome to word a podcast about race and politics and everything else i'm your host jason johnson every year we see the same story Great black television shows and movies that do well on the ratings, the box office, and social media, but somehow they don't get nominated for the biggest awards. Here on A Word, we've had several guests talk about the challenges of presenting black content in Hollywood. However, there are successful writers out there, hidden figures, if you will, that have been churning out black stories for the big screen, the small screen, novels, and comics. So how do they do it? One of those creators is Rodney Barnes. He's a producer and a writer who has worked on many shows that you love, including American Gods and Wu-Tang and American Saga and Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. He's also written comic books starring Lando Calrissian and The Mandalorian. And his latest work, the graphic novel Blackula, Return of the King, was just published. Rodney Barnes, welcome to A Word. Thank you for having me, sir. You have a really, really diverse writing career in Hollywood. You've written science fiction, you've written drama, you've written fantasy, you've written comedy. What's like the work that you are most proud of now?
1: You're not going to like this answer, but it's always the next thing. I'm in the midst of working on the Jack Johnson story for HBO as a miniseries. And the reason that I think a lot of writers say the next thing is because you always get better But typically, you get better from the last thing that you did. Hopefully, it evolves your writing, your writing process, and all aspects of you as a writer. So hopefully, the next thing that you do is better than the last. From working on Winning Time, I learned how to deal with a large cast, a lot of moving parts, sports history, history that sort of uh, has a lot of cross-sections, whether you're dealing with politics, race, culture, uh, and all of it sort of colliding with the idea of sport at the heart of it. And so the Jack Johnson story is all of that, plus a huge dollop of history during a really unique time in American history. So it requires more of myself. It requires me to take all of the stuff that you've mentioned, the drama, the comedy, not so much the science fiction, but all of the other aspects that go into telling a human story, Uh, I have to pull all of that stuff together in order to infuse that into this. So I always say the next one, and Jack Johnson is it for me now.
0: You started your career back in a time that I would call maybe like the golden age of sitcoms, right? The late 90s, early 2000s. You were on shows like My Wife and Kids, Everybody Hates Chris. My Wife and Kids ran for nine seasons, and Everybody Hates Chris launched the careers of Terry Crews and William Tyler James, yet neither show won a primetime Emmy or Golden Globe did that bother you at the time? You know, is that the kind of thing that writers even think about when they're putting a hit show together?
1: I don't think we actually thought about it, but I think we knew how much effort we had put into the show and how much talent was connected to it. We thought that we would be considered for more things than we were considered for, and that was a little disappointing. But then again... When you look at award shows, by and large, certainly during that period of time, we weren't really, you know, and by we, I mean, African-American culture, we really weren't recognized en masse. So you sort of hope, but in the back of your mind, it's probably not going to happen.
0: You're one of the writers and producers behind Winning Time, Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. One of the interesting things about that show is it depicts the lives of these sort of iconic Lakers players at the beginning of their careers in the 80s. Here's a clip.
1: You should be aware, young man, that we haven't settled on the pick yet. That's cool. I haven't settled on the team yet. But he's not opposed to a fair offer either,
0: are oh, you, son? This is a draft, not free agency. The choice is ours. He goes where he's told. Or I will go back to school, turn pro next year for a different team. I'm thinking six hundred thousand.
1: <laughs> Look here, son. Lou Alcindor is the league's biggest star. Kareem. Yeah, same difference. He's also one surly son of a bitch negotiator. And we closed at 650.
0: That's why six feels cool. I mean for now. So there's a lot in these scenes, right? Some of them are intimate conversations with Magic and his father. Some of them have to do with team owners and their racism. Some of them have to do with these black men at a time where having money and having generational wealth was still new, learning how to negotiate working with each other. How did you conceive of some of these scenes And then beyond that, after you put out this product that's very popular, how'd you respond to some of those old Lakers players trying to claim that the show wasn't reflective of their experiences?
1: It it always sort of bugged me whenever I would see sports-themed movies and TV shows that had um, Black people at the heart of it, the verb of whatever the game was. Because we would play the game, but the narrative was more likely about the coach or the owner or the person who wasn't playing the game. And the players were relegated to, that's the good one, that's the bad one, that's the one that's going to get shot. You know, just sort of a a really a one-dimensional depiction. And so television gives you the opportunity to sort of slow all of that down and to really get into the nuance and specificity of characters, certainly a place like HBO. So being able to speak to the idea when you said generational wealth and You know, scene with Magic and talking to his father, and they're talking about money for the first time. And Dad's coming from a place where he's been a working class, blue collar, working class guy his whole life. And now his son, in one failed swoop, is about to get this massive amount of money, half a million dollars. And he's negotiating. You know, what's there to negotiate? You know, but Magic sees his worth. And it speaks to that generational thing of one to the other, but it also challenges the relationship of father and son. And that's the kind of complexity that was always like exciting to me, to be able to delve into that and not so much just the game. And then race within the idea of sport has always been intriguing because... Television just shows you that one idea of the game that you see what's actually going on behind the scenes and you know we all know what's happening with the NFL and some of the problematic ideas how race is being dealt with and every once in a while it pops back up as a character in the narrative and sort of disrupts the fun there are stories behind that and so being able to to play with those stories has always been stuff that's really really interesting in regards to how the real people feel I'm sort of empathetic to it Uh, If someone was telling the Rodney Barnes story and I didn't have a say in how that story was being told, I would probably feel a way as well. You know, I would probably say, no, it wasn't like this and, and like that. And we do take creative license in the sense of, you know, you can't take 10 years and condense it into... Uh, an hour and a half, and then it'd be everything be exactly as it was. But I will say we went through a painstaking research process, We scoured through older media and interviews that people had, YouTube articles, you know, so much about that time. When you talk about that era, not just in television, but in print media, these stories were in your face, you know, in Sports Illustrated and these magazines. And so we studied all that stuff and came to the conclusions that we came to. We're all fans of the Lakers. Everybody on the show is. I started off a 76er fan during that period because I love Dr. J, but I've become a Laker fan um, of that team, the 79, 80, you know, those brothers. It really is a, a, a deep sense when you say the word fan, it's really more of an appreciator for what they accomplish. And so, so many things were happening beyond just the game itself. And then the narrative of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird almost becoming characters now, where you're not just playing a game, you're playing into the regional politics of Boston versus L.A. and the racial implications that come with that and the histories that come with both not only their franchises, but those cities and those fan bases from those respective places. So it's so much under it to dig into that's really, really rich. And again, to try to pack all of that into an hour um, and have every single thing be exactly in that moment. No, I had lemon Gatorade. It wasn't red. You know, it's like it's probably not going to happen. But uh, we do do the show with reverence and we don't just make things up.
0: Off the strength of winning time and your your general record of success, uh, you know you ink an overall deal with HBO, and you know now HBO HBO Max, the Discovery merger, all this different kind of stuff. There have been a lot of news and headlines about at least a perception that these new mega media conglomerates are less committed to stories from diverse creatives. They're less committed to stories about black people. Do you think that's the case? Do you worry as a creative, maybe not in your particular career, but looking across the landscape that these kinds of mergers are going to squeeze out stories about black and brown folks that were perhaps easier to tell 10, 15 years ago?
1: Not really, because there's so many channels and there's always going to be a need for programming to sort of hit every demo. I look at it more like the business of it more so that the agenda of doing the right thing because I don't think business is looking to necessarily do the right thing. I think it's looking for profit. And so there's always going to be people who demand that and there's always going to be as long as there's demand there's going to be some semblance of supply. So, you know, I think as long as you have creatives, you know, engaged and passionate, you have an outlet you know, and i don't put it just on the creatives because I think the point that's under your point is also they're gatekeepers as well. So they have to judge the thing because I don't make up, I'm not the person that says this is what's going to be on a network or not be on a network. But again, I do think that um, when you have so many channels to services, so much programming that you have to supply, there's always going to be the stuff that everybody wants.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on writing while black in Hollywood. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned.
1: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.
0: This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at aword@slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the challenges facing black writers in Hollywood with producer and writer Rodney Barnes. One of the shows that you worked on was The Boondocks. It was an adult animated series. It featured the voices of Regina King. It debuted back in 2005. Several episodes satirized Tyler Perry, hip-hop, and BET. Here's one of my favorite clips from the show that sort of encapsulates the attitude of The Boondocks. Welcome to BET headquarters! I'm their It's 2 p.m., so it's time for a morning staff meeting. Our leader, Bob Johnson, had a dream. A dream of creating a network that would accomplish what hundreds of years of slavery. Jim Crow and malt liquor couldn't. The destruction of black people! Yo, is that so hard? Mr. Leval, since BET came into existence, terrible things have happened to black people. Uh, dropout rates, uh, teen pregnancy, unemployment, and incarceration have skyrocketed since our debut 25 years ago. We really believe we're making a difference. The destruction of black people is not happening fast enough! What's interesting about this for me, and and, and many folks, is... Black people as a sort of collective culture are usually very protective of our creatives. And yet this show was extremely popular and some of the most quoted episodes are the ones that take an absolute blowtorch to other Black creatives and Black genres. H- how did you choose who you were going to target and, and what was the response like in the moment? Were you ever afraid as like, yo, if we touch this, we're going to get in trouble?
1: In the beginning, I looked at it like, because uh, there was a degree of naivete there for me. It was never really about the person, even when you say the headline, like it's this person and we went after that person. It was usually an organization or an idea. And that was where the comedy was mined, You know, from the idea that was under the thing. We weren't living in today's sensibilities. We were living in before social media, before you can say this, you can't say that. I don't even know if we had network sensors at the time. We just started talking You know, in hindsight, if you look at it through the lens of today, probably, you know, some episodes wouldn't exist or they certainly wouldn't exist in the way that, you know, they did, um, you know, for whatever my contribution was. But, yeah, man, I mean, it really was one of those things where you sat down and you just had fun and you talked and it was freewheeling and, you know, consequences be damned. But, oh, there were consequences, you know, but that said, when you think about the longevity and how people revere the show and, you know, invariably, whenever I'm talking to anyone about my TV career, it comes up and we have the conversation we're having right now. You know, I think under it really was a passionate appreciation for African-American culture. And I think that's the thing that sort of shined through the idea of it wasn't just about attacking people. It really was a strong point of view. So it wasn't so much that you were taking one side of an argument. you were It was a multifaceted thing. But I don't think there was ever an intent of hurting someone. That's not to say feelings weren't hurt.
0: We're going to take a short break. We come back more about writing while black in Hollywood. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about bringing black stories to life in Hollywood with writer Rodney Barnes. So Rodney, your latest work has been a line of successful horror comics. And now you've got Blackula. You do comedy, you do satire, you do sci fi. What got you into horror? What made you say, look, the thing I'm going to create on my own with my own imprint is horror comics?
1: Horror came first. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time by myself watching television and going to the movies. And, you know, I say this a lot, you know, I've been six feet tall since I was probably eight years old. So I could just walk into a movie theater and see things and no one questioned it you know movies like the exorcist and amityville horror and we can go up and down the list were movies i just walked into as a child and saturday nights i love to watch the uh, the late night scary movies the universal monsters uh, dracula wolfman frankenstein the hammer films with peter cushing and christopher lee Always loved these movies, but I never saw us, meaning African Americans, at the center of the narrative. You know, at the worst, certainly with the old ones, it was like, he went that way. And that was the best that you were going to get. And so when I was like seven or eight years old, uh, my mother decided that I needed a father. You know, my parents broke up really young. My father wasn't around for a minute. And um, when guys would date her, I would have to come on the date, and I got to pick some of the dates. And I picked Blackula to go, and this guy founded in Baltimore at the Hippodrome Theater. And I had never been to—I've been to a lot of movies, but this was a movie theater full of black people, and it was an interactive experience. It was fun; like people talked to the theater and threw things at the screen, and it was a black. The great, late great William Marshall uh, was uh, Blackula, or played Prince Mama Waldy, aka Blackula. And it was black people everywhere. It was just a beautiful experience. And as I revisited the movie, I saw the problematic parts of black exploitation. Even the name "Blackula" was problematic. I always said if I ever got the opportunity to redo this story, I would extricate the problematic parts and try to highlight the parts that uh, I enjoyed. And there's this there's this element of black exploitation that had. The civil rights slash Pan-African movement under it, whether it was in the soundtrack and the fashion and just the style of it, there was always this subversive feeling that to me connects directly to the world that we live in today. So again, there were two goals. It was to raise the idea of Prince Mama Waldi to the same level of Count Dracula. You know, if you could make him elegant, but in a setting that typically isn't treated with elegance. And that to me was a worthy goal. So that was always something I wanted to do. It just so happened that in my career, my television career, comedy opened first and other doors opened up before this. And when I tried to sell things in the industry that were horror themed, pushback. You know, it was either there's too many black people, can you put some more white people in it? And i try and try and try and couldn't find enough, whatever the right, like Goldilocks. What's the temperature of white people that I need to put into this to make this thing sell? So when the opportunity to do comics sort of manifested, it was like, why not take a shot at doing the things that really speak to my heart and what I've always wanted to get out? And uh, no pun intended for the movie Get Out. You see what I did there. But I always wanted to be able to speak to horror in a sophisticated way. And I try to make my characters in all of the aforementioned books, their humanity actually is the first thing. Whatever the human connectors in a relationship with father, son, sister, brother, whatever it is, it's always something that's human at the center of it. And then I add cultural dynamics in as to how they go about doing the thing that they do and how the horror unfolds. It's never using or hopefully not exploiting. The culture and the name of the horror.
0: Blackula debuted like 50 years ago. What made you want to specifically resurrect? There's my pun. Resurrect this character, and how does he? How is he different? He
1: is very connected to his original mission. If you remember the original Blackula movie, in the intro, Prince Mama Waldy goes to. Count Dracula, who he, does, he doesn't know that Count Dracula is a vampire. He's just a dignitary and a rich guy. And maybe he will use his wealth and influence to help stop the slave trade. And I always dug that idea. And then Count Dracula goes Dracula and bites him and kills his wife and just goes nuts. Uh, then we get into a, you know a vampire movie. And my thing was the generational trauma That comes from that idea of betrayal and speaks to him personally, on a personal level. Like, how didn't I see this? How did I not see this that I was walking into this trap? And what could I have done if I had gone in a different direction? The guilt and shame that Prince Mama Waldy feels for letting the people down. That echo of humanity is still there, even though he's a predator. And I'm a huge fan of uh, AMC's Interview the Vampire. I think it's a beautiful show. In fact, it really influenced me rewriting the Philadelphia pilot. But um, that idea of vampires just want blood, like to exist forever. And all you really do is, all you want is something to eat. What happens to your soul? What happens to trauma? What happens to guilt? What happens to all of those aspects of humanity? Do they just disappear because now you want blood so badly and you have fangs? I like the idea of the conflict, and Anne Rice has some of that, but I wanted to speak to it specifically to the culture and specifically to Prince Mama Waldi in a way that was um, heightened you know, because of who he was and what he was and what his original goal was. It wasn't just as an individual, it was an individual with a sense of purpose. It was an individual who thought that he could actually influence the thing that was happening that affected the entire culture for 400 years. And carrying that weight to me speaks to an even larger idea Uh, connected to generational trauma, connected to a lot of other stuff that I think makes it really difficult for us now to find peace. And to be able to use those themes and and weave those themes into the narrative, You know, just enough, not too much to where it's not fun and it's not a vampire story and all of that, but to be able to put a garnish every once in a while on a scene and to see that there's something else going on inside of him other than this insatiable desire for blood. To me, that was a worthy goal as well of why resurrecting Chris Boba
0: I listened to an interview that you did with Tanana reeve We've actually had her um, on a word as well. You mentioned to her, when you talk about generational trauma, that resonates through a lot of your writing. It's also something that ends up affecting writers. And you mentioned in your interview that like, like Hollywood almost killed you. What did you mean by that? And also, how do you think it sort of... It almost kills other black writers, people who are like, I can't even do this anymore, or they become depressed or they they shut down. What was that like for you?
1: The first decade of my career, um, I was miserable. I was in complete misery because I reverse engineered a career. I don't believe I was meant to be here. You know, if it wasn't like I went to NYU or USC film school and I came out, you know, on top of the world and they picked me. You know, I was a production assistant. I wanted to do a thing and I would sort of dip my toe in the water because I was afraid. I had imposter syndrome, I think, since birth. And once I got into a writer's room, every day was just abject fear. And so whatever it took to say things that weren't necessarily me, like I was pretending to be this person because I wanted to just be accepted and I wanted to stay. I just wanted to survive in it. And I saw people that I felt were more talented than me disappearing, you know, and in some cases never getting another job. And so you add that to a person who's incredibly insecure and fearful and doesn't feel like he belongs. It doesn't look like the stereotypical writer in quotes in Hollywood. You add all of those elements in, it's stress. And my cardiologist used to say that, you know, adrenaline was used to as a safety measure, you know, to for when danger comes, it wasn't meant to be like on a constant IV drip. And I was on it all day, every day, and I've got to smile, and I've got to come into a room and try to just throw jokes at the wall, and try to be funny, and try to be smart, and try to be perfect, and then not know whether it's working or not working, other than to hope that the next year I get another job. Um, that was terrifying. And then coming from a culture of People who just work nine to five jobs and who are constantly telling me, why don't you get a real job and this fantasy, put this fantasy away and get a job with benefits and settle down and behave like an adult. And so that's ringing in the back of my mind. And, you know, I come from Annapolis, Maryland, and Annapolis is a slave port. And I believe that a lot of the math of that period of time still sort of seeped its way into the culture. Of certainly my family. And I remember the first time I tried to pitch to a room full of white people. Man, I was terrified. I was just mumbling and bumbling and just saying whatever because of my fear of what they thought of me and what they thought of what I was saying. And who are you to sit here in front of these important people and say these things? You're nothing. And that was always the self loathing, it was always sort of at the forefront of my mind whenever I went in to do my job, which is hard to do. Then I hit a wall. I hit a wall. I got really, really sick in 2012. I had a heart attack, had liver failure and kidney failure, and almost died. And I remember sitting in the hospital room, really angry, really scared, um, still relatively young, and thinking to myself, how did I get here? You know, I made a decent amount of money. I'm in a career I said that I wanted, but I'm absolutely miserable and I'm at death's door. So I was like, if I ever get an opportunity, to make it out of here, I'm going to start writing from my heart and I'm going to do my thing. And so I'd always wanted to write drama. I'd always wanted to write from a genre place, you know, the stuff, the comic books and those types of things. And I started to do that. And in a weird type of way, I attracted people into my life who either saw my ability. Were supportive of my ability, supportive of me, I started going to therapy. I started to work some stuff out, mended some fences. And to me, I always say when I do panels and things that when I became a better person, I became a better writer. There's a thing I think, certainly when it comes to writing of connecting with other people and connecting with humanity. And I became better at that because I wasn't writing from a place of, oh my God, I hope they like it and I hope I can survive. I was riding from a place of vulnerability, and I was riding from a place of really um, connecting to folk and being empathetic. Really, maybe for the first time in my life, I will say, even though it's incredibly difficult journey, I'm glad I went on it. I like the person today much better than the person of yesterday.
0: Rodney Barnes is a writer and executive producer of Winning Time, Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. His new graphic novel, Blackula, Rise of the King, is out now. Rodney Barnes, thank you so much for joining me today on a word.
1: You're very, very welcome, my brother. It's always great to talk to you.
0: And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula, Ben Richmond, is Slate's Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for word. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.